Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's room, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live in a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Test? All right. (laughs) I want to welcome everybody to Good News. Let's just use this one. Let's just use this one. We were going to try a new mic today, but it worked before. But as always, when it comes time to use it during the sermon, it doesn't work. It's probably my fault because I probably move around a lot and I reposition it. Well, I want to welcome everybody to Good News Church today. And, uh, you know, talking to a few of you, uh, you know, it seems like uh, these days people are going through uh, kind of a rough time at work, rough time maybe in life a little bit, uh, a little tired and a little exhausted. And uh, we've been going through this series on Ecclesiastes, and it's not the most uh, uplifting of books. And I likened it to somebody who kind of 
takes a needle and pops balloons of this little kid. And uh, Pastor John said last week, you know, this, this person, Kohelet, this preacher, uh, can be really annoying. And uh, even at this past week, uh, we had an elders meeting, and our brother Fred said, I, I really don't like this guy, Kohelet. And uh, it's something that I think uh, we can all resonate, uh, but uh, he has more to say. And so we're going to continue to go through this. And I think it's, it's going to be actually a very relevant topic for, for many of us today. But before we go into it, I'm going to invite you all to pray with me. So let's pray together. <clears throat> uh, God, we thank you so much that uh, you challenge us, that even through times where we feel very beat, where we feel tired, where we feel weary, uh, that you are there to remind us again of where true strength comes from, uh, that even by your grace you can reorient our perspective and set our hearts uh, straight and to uh, lean upon you. And God, we know that these things don't happen uh, by our own will, by our own desire, by our own strength, but these things happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at this word today, we pray that your spirit would realign us, reorient us, help us to see you, help us to see things from your perspective, uh, that we might live a life that's fruitful and a life unto you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, you know, this past week I was, uh, I was a little sick, and I knew I was sick because I know what it feels like to be healthy. And I know maybe there are some people here as well uh, who have been sick this past week, and maybe you stayed home, and maybe you tried to get some rest, and I'm sure you too can recognize uh, when you were sick or that you felt sick because also, you also know what it's like to be healthy. The problem when it comes to money is that we don't always recognize or know that we have this sickness when it comes to money and the pursuit of wealth. Uh, as I said before, we're going through this series in Ecclesiastes and how we're framing this series is we're framing it as a search. And we're coming to this passage today where this person, Kohelet, seems to be searching for things and specifically talking about the topic of wealth and money. And I think that topic can be tricky to talk about because usually we are the last persons to recognize greed in our own hearts, and usually we're the first people to recognize greed in other people's hearts. And so we can be the least... Uh, self-aware when it comes to our own hearts and our pursuit of money and wealth. But at the same time, we can be the most judgmental of others at their pursuit of wealth and how other people spend money. Not only that, we live in New York City. And New York City is filled with people who are wealthy. New York City is also a very expensive city to live in. And that probably means that most of us, I would say, feel like we don't have enough money uh, because everything is just so expensive. And you think about how much uh, our perspective uh, can change over the years uh, when it comes to things like money and finances. Uh, think about you maybe five years ago or ten years ago and ask yourself this. Uh, did you have a number where you thought, you know, if I made this much money, if my salary was this much, then I would be content and I would be all set? And maybe some of you have reached that point. Maybe some of you have surpassed that point. And if you did, are you content? My guess would be probably not because uh, the nature of money and the nature of wealth is just that seductive. 
Uh, maybe even today we feel like, you know, if I just made this certain amount of money, I'll be happy. But I think if you ever reach that point and if you ever reach that number, you're probably not going to be content. Because contentment doesn't come from the acquisition of having a lot of money, but contentment is ultimately an issue of our hearts. I heard that John D. Rockefeller, and uh, you know Rockefeller, I think most people have heard of him, he was a very wealthy man, and someone was, once asked him, how much money is enough money for you? And his response was this, just a little bit more. And I think that's the seduction of money. We just never feel like we have enough of it. There was this opinion piece uh, in the New York Times a few years ago by a former hedge fund trader named Sam Polk, and he was sharing his story, and he's one of the few people, I think, that came to the conclusion that he had a problem with wealth, that he had an addiction, in fact, to wealth, that he had a money sickness. And he begins his story when he talks about a time when he got angry because he received a bonus of $3.6 million. And the reason he was angry was because he thought it wasn't enough. He thought he deserved more. And he would talk about his desire for money like an alcoholic talks about their desire for another drink or like a drug addict talks about their desire for another hit. And he found himself and he came to the conclusion, I have a serious addiction to wealth. I have a problem here. And he wrote this article about it. You know what's interesting is when we think about addiction, uh, people classify addiction as a disorder for all sorts of things, right? There's alcohol addiction, there's a sex addiction, there's drug addiction, and these are considered disorders by society. But I've never heard anybody classify wealth as an addiction or as a disorder, or an addiction to wealth as a disorder. It just seems so normal to us. Who, who doesn't love money? Who doesn't want to make more money? Who doesn't want to pursue more money? Isn't that part of what the American dream is? And so what we tend to do is we, we embark on this search to acquire more of it because we live with this mentality that if we reach that number or if we have this amount in our bank account, then we'll be content. Now you hear this story about Sam Polk, this hedge fund trader, and maybe your reaction was similar to mine uh, when you hear that figure, $3.6 million. My thought is this. You know, if I had made $3.6 million as a bonus in one year, I would definitely be content. That would be more than enough for me. But maybe that's something that we shouldn't assume because we, maybe many of us, haven't been put in that position. I certainly haven't been put in that position. Maybe when we say these things, we underestimate the seduction that money and finances and wealth can have in our hearts Maybe if I received a $3.6 million bonus, I would actually want five, a $5 million bonus so that I can buy that house in the south of France. The nature of our hearts is as we consume more, our hearts get hungrier and hungrier for more. When we look at some of Kohelet's reflections in this passage, he seems to have the similar experience as this hedge fund trader. And he says this in verse 10. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. In other words, if you love money, you will never be content with the amount of money that you make or you have. 
It's kind of like what David Foster Wallace, the novelist, said. He said something similar. If you worship money, if you love money to the point of worship, you're always going to feel like you're poor. And it's that deep love and worship of money that makes us lose perspective. It makes us a little bit crazy. It makes us a little bit foolish, I would even say. You know, think about it. Uh, imagine, uh, imagine somebody who lived in some really poor third world country were just following us around with this little camera and uh, looked at some of the comments we said. Things like, as we look into our closet and there's, there's basically a lot of clothes and we say things like, I have nothing to wear today. Or when we uh, open our refrigerators and it's filled with food and we go, why don't I have anything to eat? Or when we are, have the TV on, have the laptop on our laps, and have our smartphone out, say, I'm so bored. There's just nothing to do. Imagine what somebody would think as they saw us make these kinds of comments, and they would kind of say, you're, you're crazy. <laughs> Don't you see all that you have? But that's, that's part of the disease, I think, of, of uh, our hearts, of this pursuit of wealth, of this pursuit of money. In reality, it has not much to do with our circumstances, but it has everything to do with our hearts. And I've heard that there is this kind of uh, parasite that can live in your intestine. And uh, one of the symptoms of knowing that you have this parasite could be that you just feel hungry all the time. And as you eat more and more, uh, you just feel hungry, hungry, and never satisfied. And I think that's kind of how it is with money or for one who loves money. The more we consume it, the more we get, the more we want and that's probably the foundation of the culture that we live in, a consumer culture that's selling us a dream, that's telling us that we'll be fulfilled once we consume that one more thing. But once we get it, once we consume it, what happens? We just want something more. And we easily transition from saying things like, you know, if I just had a little bit of money, it would be nice. And we go from that and we say, man, I, I wish... I had more money. I just want some more money. And we go from that, and we say, I need more money. I need it. And as soon as we use that kind of language of I need, it shows, I think, that we're going to lack contentment with what we have. When we say things like I need, we're going to feel poor. And when we feel poor, then all kinds of evil things are going to sprout forth. We're going to become envious of others. We're going to become thankless. We're going to become miserable, selfish, inwardly focused people who can justify all of these things because we think we are in a position of poverty. And that's folly. That's folly. You know, if any of you have ever read the book, The Big Short, or seen the movie, it tells a story of our folly. And uh, I think what I appreciated about the movie is this. When it talks about greed, it doesn't just single out one group of people. It doesn't just point out to the banks, uh, but it, it spreads the blame. It says, yeah, it was these financial institutions. Yeah, it was kind of their fault. It was the uh, government regulators. It was kind of their fault. But it was also the people who bought houses that they couldn't afford. It was their fault as well. There's this folly of greed. Everybody was greedy. Everybody wanted more. And that was the problem in terms of why we got into this financial crisis. We just consumed and consumed and consumed. And people look back at those times and we say, man, everybody was foolish. But I don't know if much has changed since then. 
And I think, again, it's symptomatic of how we oftentimes see greed. It's so easy to point it out in other people and to blame other people and to say, you know, you had a greed problem. But it's so hard to say, you know, I have a greed problem. Uh, I just care about money and finances too much, and I want it too much. So perhaps I would suggest is, uh, you know, everybody probably has a greed problem. I know I have a greed problem. Maybe what we should do is let's first look at our own hearts and examine our own hearts. Maybe by default assume that we have a greed problem. And perhaps the Lord can work in our hearts as we do. You know, Kohelet, he doesn't just end his reflections on the inability of money to satisfy, but he also points out some other reasons why this pursuit of wealth is vanity. And if you look at verse 11, he says this, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? What does that mean? In other words, there comes a point in wealth when it just becomes impractical and you no longer use the things that you have gained, but there comes a point where you just kind of like to look at it. Uh, if anybody's my age, uh, maybe you grew up watching the cartoon DuckTales. And uh, in this cartoon, do you remember the character Scrooge McDuck? He was this very wealthy character, and he had a vault filled with money. And one of the things that he enjoyed to do as a hobby, he would just swim in it. And he would wear his bathing suit, and he would just swim in his money and just enjoy it. And kind of in that case, you know, his money actually lost utility. He just liked it because he kind of liked to play in it, right? He just kind of liked to look at it. It's, it's kind of like somebody who uh, buys this really expensive piece of furniture but doesn't let anybody sit on it because it's so expensive and so nice. And uh, you just kind of look at it and you kind of enjoy it. Or other people, they might buy this really expensive car, but it's too nice to drive and so it just sits in the driveway and you just look at it. And that's kind of what Kohelet is saying here in verse 11. There is a point where if you're just going to have wealth in order to look at it, then what's the point? It's just vanity. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's in different ways. Maybe you like to look at your bank accounts and look at your stock portfolios, and there's no practical reason or practical use for it, but you just kind of like to open it up and just see that the, the numbers are there. Maybe it's because you don't, it's not necessarily you need the money to buy things that are practical, but you just like having it. It just makes you feel good. And Kohelet would say, is, is this, what's the point? Right? What's the point of wealth if that's all you're going to do? Not only that, but wealth can also lead to greater restlessness. And in verse 12 he says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And then in verses 13 and 14 he begins to talk about how you can lose those riches in a bad venture. And the downside of having a lot of wealth is this, that you can, you actually have a lot that you can lose. And I was listening to this interview with David Chang, the, the chef, and uh, he was talking about uh, the Michelin star rating. It's this rating system that restaurants are given, and three stars are the highest stars, and he's never achieved three stars, but I guess his restaurants, the highest they've achieved is two stars. And uh, he, he was saying, you know, if he ever did achieve that three-star Michelin rating for his restaurant, he thinks it wouldn't be good for him. 
because he would be so stressed out about holding on to those three stars and maintaining that level that the level of stress would just get unhealthy for him. The anxiety that potentially comes with losing that star the following year, it could just will kind of suck the joy out of getting those three stars in the first place. You know, some people hoard their wealth. Some people uh, invest in things and invest in business ventures. But here's the reality of, of money. Uh, you can't hold on to it forever, and there's always a risk of losing it. And because there's always a risk of losing it, Sometimes having a lot of money and having a lot of wealth causes more anxiety because you're always worried about losing it. You know, when the financial crisis happened, who had a harder time sleeping? Was it that wealthy, maybe businessman or financial person who just saw his or her portfolio get obliterated? Or was it somebody who was just living paycheck to paycheck? I would probably guess it's the person who saw their wealth obliterated because they had more to lose. And that's what Kohelet is pointing out here. We can't hold on to it. It just causes restlessness and greater anxiety. And so according to him, there's no point in loving money because at the end of the day, there is no satisfaction. At the end of the day, it can lead to greater anxiety. At the end of the day, hoarding your wealth is foolish because eventually you may lose it. And so what? is one to do. Well, he says this, therefore, enjoy it. Enjoy it. You know, there's a tendency, I think, for Christians to think that enjoying the good things of the world is something that is wrong or sinful. But it's not. You know, we see it in some of the hymns. There's this line in that hymn, All to Jesus I Surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. I don't think that's exactly the biblical perspective that we're supposed to forsake all worldly pleasures, but God gives us these pleasures in the world to enjoy them so that they can, uh, so that we can praise him for the good gifts that he gives us. The problem is what we tend to do is in our sin, we tend to elevate these pleasures, we tend to elevate the created things over the creator, and that's what typically gets us into trouble. But Kohelet is saying this, is like, if God has given you so much, if God has given you all this wealth, enjoy it. That sounds like good advice. But then once we get to chapter 6, things seem to take a turn. And uh, things start to go down this dark path, starting in chapter 6. And uh, he seems to start reflecting on how God can give wealth and possessions to someone but that person can't fully enjoy it. Someone else is ultimately going to enjoy it. That was essentially the same problem as a person who hoarded their wealth. They can't even enjoy their wealth. What's the point? Now in chapter 6, he talks about this person who has wealth, they can't enjoy it because one day they're going to die and somebody else is going to enjoy that wealth. And it leads him down this dark path and he says, what's the point. You know, Prince died uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was never a big fan uh, of his music, but I did enjoy watching him perform because he was just a great guitar player, a great guitar player. And uh, I don't really know too much about him or about his life, but since he died, you know, there's been a couple news stories that came out. And uh, some of the stories are talking about, because I guess, I guess he didn't have uh, children, and uh, I guess he wasn't married, so, but he had a lot of money. And kind of who is all that 
money going to go to? Where is his estate going to go? And you think about it, he, he made a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars, but all of a sudden, death took him. He died. And he couldn't even enjoy the fullness of all of the money that he made. And that's, that's kind of what Kohelet is thinking about here. He's saying, you could make all this money, but one day you could just die and not enjoy it. What's the point? That's why he has, don't, doesn't everybody go to one place? What advantage has the wise man over the fool? And he, his con- basic conclusion is this. This pursuit of wealth, this pursuit of possessions, it's all vanity, meaningless. Yet it's the very thing I think that probably consumes many of our own hearts. When we turn to the pages of the New Testament and to the teachings of Jesus, he picks up on some of these themes, but I think he takes them further. Uh, There's this parable that he tells in Luke chapter 12 of a rich man who hoarded his wealth. And this rich man, he had land, and this land produced plentifully. Uh, In other words, he had really good real estate, and this real estate made him a lot of money. So what he ended up doing is he built these large barns so he could store all of that wealth. And so he could say to his soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And you know what God says to him? God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And God basically says, this, you're going to die. What's going to happen to all this wealth? You're a fool because you put all of your hope, you put all of your trust, you put all of your security in this wealth. And Jesus' summary point is this. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I think his point is basically this. In order to be rich toward God, you can't store up wealth in barns. But you have to empty your barns. See, everything that Jesus taught about money and possessions, I think, seems to point to that. Who was honored more? Was it that rich person who put a stack of money in the offering plate? Or was was it that widow who put in two copper coins? The widow was honored more because she emptied her barn. When the rich ruler asked what he must do to inherit eternal life, what does Jesus tell him? Sell everything and give it to the poor. What is he saying? He's saying, empty your barns. When a woman pours out a very expensive alabaster flask of ointment on Jesus' head, how do his disciples react? They say, why are you wasting that? You know what you could have done with that? You could have sold it, and you could have taken that money, and you could have given it to the poor. What does Jesus say? Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for me. Why? What did she do? She emptied her barns and poured out her wealth on Jesus. Why does Jesus' teaching seem to point to this when it comes to wealth? It's because this is exactly what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. Jesus emptied his barns. He became poor so that we who were poor might become rich in him. 
You know, there's this uh, misunderstanding I think that Christians can have um, in that Christians can think that wealth is inherently evil, but it's not. The problem is not with money. The problem is not with wealth. But the problem is with how we define wealth. And when we define wealth as money and possessions, then we run into this problem that Kohelet presents in Ecclesiastes, and we run into the problem of the rich man in the parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 12. Uh, we try to depend on these things to give us eternal satisfaction, but these things are not built or constructed to do that. You see, there is a sense in which God wants us to be wealthy, that God wants us to be rich. If you think about it, how is heaven described in the final chapters of the book of Revelation? There's a picture of feasting. There's a huge party. What kinds of materials are the, is the new Jerusalem made out of? There's a measuring rod made out of gold. There's a wall made out of jasper. The foundations of the wall, they're adorned with every kind of precious jewel. The gates are made with pearls, and the streets are made of pure gold. And you just picture that in your mind, and what is that? That's not a picture of poverty, but that's actually a picture of great wealth. The problem that most of us have is twofold. We often think that wealth is defined by money and possessions here on earth. And second, we think that wealth is something that we ultimately earn or acquire. We've already addressed the first problem. The second problem is only addressed when we properly understand the message of the gospel. You see that, that picture of heaven, the riches of heaven. The only way that one can acquire it, it's not by working super hard and earning it. It's not by being super righteous. That is something that is just given to us out of God's free grace. That is something that we call an inheritance. An inheritance that is unfading and imperishable. Think about an inheritance. Uh, what is an inheritance? Well, it's something that you simply receive by being a member of the family. You don't really do anything to earn an inheritance. And when Jesus dies upon the cross, one of the things that we are given is we are given sonship. We become the children of God. We become invited to be partakers of the very family of God and in Christ and in the gift of sonship, we have this wonderful inheritance, this glorious inheritance. And we become wealthy people in Christ. A kind of wealth that can't be taken away. A kind of wealth where moth won't destroy, where robbers can't steal, where financial crises can't take away. And it's wealth that's far more valuable than anything in this world, or that's defined as wealth in this world. You know, C.S. Lewis has that famous quote that we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on playing with mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, and we are far too easily pleased, and that is the problem with us, that we are far too captivated by 
the wealth in this world. And we don't truly see the wealth that we have in Christ. See, what's the, the secret to uh, a content life? It's not by reaching our financial goals. But it's by realizing what we have in Christ and realizing that it is far more valuable than any possessions here on earth. You know what that takes? That takes faith. And faith is a gift from God. And perhaps what we need most is not more money, but perhaps we need greater faith. Greater faith to see the things of God. Greater faith to know how wealthy we are in Him, even when we lack in material things. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, Paul tells Timothy to address the rich. And he says this, As for the rich, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is Paul charging Timothy to tell the rich of his day? Saying, don't be, don't be haughty, don't be arrogant. Saying, don't put your, your hope in these riches. Saying, be rich in good works and be generous. Look to this great foundation of the future that's guaranteed in Christ. And you kind of wonder, if Paul were writing to Timothy today, who would be the rich of today? I would say, comparatively speaking to the rest of the world, it's probably people in this room. Timothy would probably be addressing the people in this room. He would be addressing us, and he would be saying the very same things. And because we live in a place like New York, because we always feel poor, because we always see people who have more, it's going to be hard. And our hearts are always going to be concaved inward, and we're always going to think that if we just had a little bit more, we would be all right. But the charge is this. Be rich in good works. Be generous. And set your hope on the foundation of the riches of, of Christ. You know, there's so many songs about money, and unfortunately, many of those songs are not appropriate to read here. Uh, like Biggie's uh, Mo Money, Mo Problems, uh, even uh, that song uh, Billionaire by Bruno Mars. You know, I was just reading the lyrics, and I was like, yeah, I can't really read these. But I did come across a verse of a song that I think I can read here. Uh, I think most people know this song, Bittersweet Symphony by The Verb. And when you listen to the song, it's kind of hard to make out the lyrics. Right? It's like one of those songs, but uh, if you read it, the lyrics are pretty good. And he says this, Because it's a bittersweet symphony, this life. Try to make ends meet. You're a slave to money, then you die. Very Ecclesiastes right there. I'll take you down the only road I've ever been down. You know the one that takes you to the places where all the veins meet. You're a slave to money, then you die. Jesus came to give us freedom. He came to free us from the slavery, from being enslaved to money and possessions and finances. And he came to rescue us from death. 
And in the end, there will only be a sweet symphony and a chorus of the redeemed saints singing in worship to the one who redeemed us as we enjoy all the good riches that are given to us in Christ in the new Jerusalem. And the only way we can let go of the things of earth and not pursue wealth and money with our entire hearts and to actually experience and find contentment is by having the faith to know where true wealth lies and to know that we have it in Christ. Let's bow our heads and reflect a little bit as a worship team comes and leads us.